so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. Contended that she ought to be legally considered a person, thus possessing the ability to invoke habeas. Wait, how do I say this? Habeas. Ha, habeas corpus. Habeas corpus. There habeas we go. Corpus. Wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable. You want to start that over? Yes. Okay. Thus possessing the ability to invoke hab- <laughs> I can't. <laughs> habeas corpus. Habeas corpus. <laughs> habeas corpus. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where each week we'll be talking about our work at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians should know about the things going on in the world. I'm Lindsay Nicolay, and with me this week, as always, is Brent Leatherwood. Your faithful co-host. That's right. Guest host. is Not a guest host. Always here and present. Yeah, back from, uh, wait, did you go to Florida? No, you didn't. I'm, I'm, I am imagining you going on vacation. No, but gosh, I, I want to. Uh, no, I, I got to take a few days off over the Independence Day holiday uh, to head home to Chattanooga and see family. And kids were all happy to be around the grandparents. And I was just I was just happy to be back in East Tennessee. Yes. And your two favorite holidays, in case listeners want to know. My Chris- birthday oh, no. and Independence Oh, Oh, I was going to say Christmas. Oh, and- okay. <laughs> oh no, I thought you were Day. saying my two holidays together. And no. I feel like my birthday, it, it really should be. <laughs> no, Christmas and Independence Day. Yes, yes. Well, we are, we're starting to wind up uh, patriotic music season. And, uh, and that means Christmas music season will mm. be upon us soon. Do you wind it up or do you wind it down? What? Uh, yes. What? Wind it? What did I say? Wind it up. Oh, okay. yes. <laughs> we're wrapping. You got we're wrapping up. On the mind. We're wrapping up. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, you know, happy belated fourth to everyone. I hope you had a great holiday. And uh, there have been several things going on lately with Dobbs happening, and uh, there have just been other things happening in the culture. So we're going to get to that soon. But first, we're going to start with what the ERLC has been talking about this week. And the article I want to start with is by Jackson McNeese, and he's actually a former intern of ours. We just seem to churn out great interns. We are blessed with solid young men and women who really put me to shame when I think about what I was doing at 21, 22, 23. Definitely wasn't writing an article like this one I'm about to mention. And it's titled, What the Happy the Elephant Controversy Teaches Us About Personhood. So here is a recap from the article. On June 14th of this year, the New York Court of Appeals ruled in a 5-2 decision that Happy was not a human. So Happy... We needed a court to rule. (laughs) Right, exactly. In our day and age, yes. Happy is a 51-year-old Asian elephant. I did not realize elephants lived that long. I don't know much about elephants, but... 
Happy has been kept at the Bronx Zoo for the past 45 years, having spent the previous 15 years in isolation because uh, she has a hostile relationship with other elephants at the zoo. Oh, my. The non-human rights project representing Happy contended that she ought to be legally considered a person, thus possessing the ability to invoke habeas corpus, which would free her from isolation at the zoo. So uh, this might seem ridiculous that we're talking about this, but actually it's important for us to realize as Christians that God has told us in Genesis that he has made human beings distinct from animals. And while God has created all of creation and there might be similar characteristics that we might see that reflect who our creator is, no animal is the same as a human. Human beings are specially made in the image of God. It's called the Imago Dei. We talk about it a lot. And while faithful Christians might disagree on what exactly being created in the Imago Dei includes, like things like having rational capacity, creative freedom, walking on two legs, self-awareness, we have to realize that we are distinct from an elephant. And then we have to realize that human beings, regardless of their capacities or abilities, have inherent worth and their rights are to be protected from preborn babies all the way until natural death. Yeah, Lindsay, this I, I'm I'm glad that we did this piece. Uh, on the one hand, it is uh, absurd that we are having this kind of conversation. Uh, I'm, I'm thankful that that Jackson kind of got into the nuts and bolts of the case and was able to tease out. Uh, some of the truths that we as Christians would apply to this. And that's that's the thing. Whether it is about an animal uh, or whether it is about uh, individuals who are legitimately dealing with things like uh, gender dysphoria or just activists out there uh, who are trying to say, I am one thing, not what you know God bi- biologically made them to be. Christians just, we need to be prepared to answer those with convictional kindness uh, that is is rooted in the truths of Scripture to help help point people back to, hey, th- this is actually something that can't be either chosen by you or these truths extended to animals. We have a specific design that was given to us by God, and that design is for our flourishing. Well, and we have a lot of pieces on our site dealing with personhood, uh, specifically by our friend, and ethicist, Dr. Ben Mitchell. And he notes that back in the day, the question was, and the debate was, when does life begin? Not because of science, it's becoming more more apparent and so that you cannot uh, deny it. Now the question and the debate is, when, what constitutes a person? And so that's what's happening in this case with Happy the Elephant, and that's what's happening in the abortion debates. And so I would encourage you to search Ben Mitchell's articles, Personhood, on our site, and we'll link to them in our show notes, and read up on those because that will help you, as Brent said, to be ready to give an answer and to be able to think well and think biblically about these arguments that are coming from our wider culture. 
Next up, it's pivoting to a different topic, but this is an interview that our colleague Jill Wagner did uh, with the CEO of a popular parental control app. And this is about a, a very real problem. You might not think it applies to those kids around you, but it does when you hear the statistics. So this is an article and an interview about how to talk to your kids about the problem of sexting. And again, for older generations, it might seem like, what in the world? But... As Jill says at the opening of our article, children today encounter an online world unlike anything experienced by prior generations. Over 50% of American kids have their own smartphone by age 11. And on average, 13-year-olds now devote more than seven hours a day to non-school-related screen time. And the statistics about sexting is when people send sexually explicit or revealing pictures or texts. The statistics are really shocking. Two out of every three girls ages 12 to 18 have been asked to take and share an image. One study found that 14% of teens have sent an image and 24% have admitted to receiving photos. And then one in 18 have said that they've had their photos shared without their consent. So all that to say is something that we need to be proactive about as believers to talk to our children about in an age-appropriate way. And this, the CEO of this app, of course, has knows these things, knows what's going on in this world, and is able to help us think well and give us strategies, practical strategies to be able to, to share with our kids as we teach them the truth of what God's Word says, that they are made in His image, that they have worth, and that they don't want to give that away to somebody else. I'm thankful uh, for all the time and attention, Lindsay, that you and and Jill uh, on our team uh, devoted to this particular piece because it it is such a you know it's a it's a subject that I think probably a lot of parents are kind of hesitant to raise uh, with their children and the fact is is we need to and we don't want parents particularly those in in our audience to just run haphazardly into that conversation. And so resources like this can be very helpful to just kind of creating somewhat of a game plan in your mind for how to talk about this uh, wisely and helpfully with your kids. And um, so, I, again, just kind of in where I started, I'm so thankful that the precision and the clarity and the, the time that the two of y'all took in creating this and, and really trying to tease out uh, the interviews from the the CEO of this company to make sure that there are uh, really helpful points that that parents can utilize. Well, and we need to remember, smartphones are not neutral. Well, you know, they're not uh, good or bad in and of themselves, but the use of them and who is utilizing them is not neutral. And also, our hearts are not neutral. And our children's hearts are not neutral. So if they are not captured by the love and the grace of Jesus, they can be led astray by other things. And so, again, we need to be proactive in this to get to them before the world does, before the enemy does, and entices them away uh, by these things that just will can damage them. But, of course, our God is a God of redemption, so we have hope in that. And then our final article is by Hannah Daniel, our colleague who's leading our DC efforts. And it's such a helpful article. It's a roundup of post-Roe abortion developments in America. So it's been two weeks since the Dobbs decision. And she runs through what's happening in the various states, in Congress, in the White House, in the Biden administration, 
and then in abortion clinics and pregnancy resource centers and has a bunch of helpful links within her piece and just calls us to be aware of where the frontiers are in the pro-life movement. Again, it's a huge victory that Roe has been overturned. At the same time, it is just the beginning of a new phase of the pro-life movement. And so that's what all this information is, to help equip us to be able to meet vulnerable moms, dads, families, babies, where they are, and to help create a post-abortion America, by God's grace. One of the uh, most helpful sections in this piece that Hannah laid out was the fact that there is still a role for the federal government to be playing in this. Uh, there's been a lot of confusion, and look, we're, we're still, uh, to this day, uh, still digesting the effects of the Supreme Court's decision in the Dobbs case and just what it means to overturn Roe. So in some sense, that's not all that surprising. But because so much of the attention has focused on the fact that now abortion may be regulated at the state level, which is the practical effect of it, some out there have taken that to mean, as a matter of fact, we've, we've gotten some questions on it uh, here in the office, uh, good faith questions where folks have said, wait, so does this mean that the federal government has no role to play in abortion? No, that's that's not what the court said. So you have to remember, when Roe was decided, essentially uh, what took place was the court elevated that issue and took it unto itself to basically decide and then further entrenched it uh, with the Casey decision that came in, in 1992. What the court was saying here is hey, we're now going to remove this precedent uh, that we've established and return it back to the states for action, which is where it was prior to Roe. Roe, remember, was uh, a case coming out of Texas. And so uh, that doesn't mean that the federal government cannot take action. As a matter of fact, I think we discussed this a little bit last week, but if not, um, it's certainly been in the news. Speaker Pelosi uh, has said that that she wants to take a vote to enshrine Roe in federal law. That could happen. There's nothing in the decision that would prevent uh, the federal government, Congress, I should say, from doing that. And that's why we need to be especially vigilant, and we will be uh, here at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and our other pro-life allies. We need to be especially vigilant uh, should that come about. But so I, I just think that section is really helpful because it just kind of puts to rest a misconception that's out there. Uh, again, it's a good faith misconception. A lot of people are still trying to understand uh, everything with the Dobbs decision and what the court decided. But that's why this piece, and it does that in other areas as well. Uh, it's very, very helpful piece. And we're thankful for Hannah's incredible efforts there in D.C. and uh, as well as the interns that we have for the summer there who are so helpful, and I know that you will find this piece helpful, and it will be a reference for you as you're having conversations with those in your lives who are curious as to what has been going on since the Dobbs decision came down. As I always say, there are a lot more great resources on our site, but Brent, for now, that's your look at what's happening at ERLC.com. Moving into our culture section this week, Brent, I know you're going to talk about what's happening in our land, but also across the pond. So uh, why don't you give us some insight as to what's going on? Yes, Lindsay, that's right. Uh, without a doubt, probably the biggest story of this calendar week has been the dizzying 
spectacle that has taken place uh, across the pond, as you said, uh, with our our friends over in the United Kingdom, uh, and, and in particular, their in their political world, uh, which has led to the very abrupt resignation of uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson. So from his speech, we'll start there with his own words uh, from the BBC. It, it has the text of his speech, and he, he points out in a couple of different places. And he says, And to my friends in politics, no one is remotely indispensable. And he was saying that as a way to say, obviously, uh, he is being shown the door by his own conservative party. He then went on to say, I want you to know how sad I am to be giving up the best job in the world. And I regret not to have been successful in those arguments to remain on the job. And of course, it's painful not to be able to see through so many ideas and projects myself. And then he took a little bit of a dig at his uh, fellow conservative party members. But as we have seen at Westminster, the herd instinct is powerful. And when the herd moves, it moves. So I just pulled out a, a few of those because to give our audience a sense that the prime minister, uh, as he is exiting, he is not going quietly. And he he clearly is uh, not in agreement uh, with what became the overwhelming sentiment of his fellow party members there in uh, the British parliamentary system, which does work just slightly different than our own system. And so it would be helpful to point to a piece that unpacks a little bit of this. And this comes to us from the New York Times. Boris Johnson said on Thursday that he would step down as Britain's prime minister after a wholesale rebellion of his cabinet, a wave of government resignations, and a devastating loss of party support prompted by his handling of the latest scandal that has engulfed his leadership. Mr. Johnson said he would stay on his post until the Conservative Party chooses a new leader, which could take several months. He said he expected the timetable for his departure and the selection of a successor to be decided on Monday by a committee of senior conservative lawmakers. Mr. Johnson's decision capped a dizzying 48 hours in British politics that began on Tuesday evening with the unexpected resignation of two of his highest-ranking ministers. So a couple of things to point out from what I read just there. It is accurate to say that this is the latest uh, scandal involving Prime Minister Johnson's uh, administration. There have been a number of these to varying degrees of seriousness, I, I guess I should point out. The one that has caught the most attention of uh, the British people and, and the media has been uh, the one called the Partygate scandal. And essentially, uh, just to briefly summarize that, uh, an investigation into the activities of his administration found that the prime minister and members of his team were illegally gathering for social occurrences uh, during the lockdowns uh, in the midst of the pandemic. And so this government inquiry found uh, that, that those gatherings were illegal. Uh, they, they weren't necessarily related to the running of the government. And so he was fined for that. And uh, in doing so, he became the first prime minister to face such a consequence. This most recent one, uh, however, deals with something entirely different. He had elevated an individual to a political position uh, who uh, apparently it was uh, conveyed to the prime minister, had some uh, evidence in his background of inappropriate behavior. 
then uh, once he was uh, appointed, it was found out that he actually had groped individuals. And uh, when Mr. Johnson learned about it, he re- he apparently refused to take any action on it immediately. Uh, and that is really what led to this cascading series of events and this huge wave of resignations from his cabinet and from the government to the point where uh, this is the most instances where that has occurred of any prime minister in, in British history. Uh, so it, it was becoming very clear uh, Wednesday afternoon, uh, Wednesday morning here, that after the prime minister did his typical scheduled prime minister questions uh, with the members of uh, the House of Commons, that it was probably only a matter of time uh, before uh, Mr. Johnson was going to have to step aside as prime minister. And that ended up happening first thing this morning uh, here in America. And so Mr. Johnson came out and announced that he would be resigning. He said, though, that that he will step down once a successor has been named. There is already some uh, speculation that that he may not actually be able to fulfill that promise because members of his own party are so incensed by uh, this scandal that they actually want him to leave sooner. And so it will be interesting to see if he can actually make it to the fall, which is about the timetable most individuals expect uh, an, an election for a new prime minister to be held within the party itself. So, Brent, some of these scandals honestly seem um, relatively minor compared to what we've witnessed in our own country uh, in recent years. So, uh, and it's across the pond. So, why does it, why should it matter to us? Why are you talking about this today? Yeah, that is true. I I mean, when you look at some of these, they do seem to be uh, by a few degrees different than than some of what uh, we have witnessed here. But uh, some of that has to do with the actual structure of the system there. So uh, a number of uh, British political analysts were pointing this out. As part of his defense, Prime Minister Johnson kept saying that he had this mandate uh, from people. And he's referring back to the 2019 election, the general election in the UK, where conservatives uh, swept to a huge majority, an 80-seat majority uh, in in the House of Commons. And so he is right about that, but he kept saying it as if he himself had a personal mandate. Well, that system doesn't necessarily uh, very cleanly allow for that uh, because the prime minister is the head of the party. And so it's the party uh, over there that is is much more, more or less, in the driver's seat, if you will, in their political uh, day-to-day operations. And so you had a number of Tories, uh, conservative party members here, who kept rebutting that by saying, no, it is the conservative party who got that mandate in 2019. Uh, because, as we talked about a few weeks ago, Prime Minister Johnson just more or less, barely survived a no-confidence vote about three, four weeks ago. Uh, so he he has been kind of uh, up against a lot of challenges recently. And it was uh, it was only a matter of time, probably, before something like this happened. I don't know if anyone saw this particular scandal. But to your larger question uh, about why we should care about this, well, we should care about it because the UK is our closest 
ally. They're not our first ally. That, that belongs to the French. That title belongs to the French. But they are clearly one of our most important partners uh, across the globe. And uh, we have, you know, there's a term in diplomatic spaces about the alliance that we have with the UK. It's called the special relationship. And I, I love using that term. Uh, I, I think it just speaks to so much of the uh, robust relationship that we have with them. But this comes from the George W. Bush Presidential Library. Uh, and they've got a whole section devoted to the special relationship, and, and they define it this way. The term special relationship was first coined by Prime Minister Winston Churchill as early as 1944 to describe the close allyship and cooperation between the United States and the United Kingdom. In 1946, he went on to emphasize that the good of the special relationship between the two countries would be realized by and beneficial to the world. And uh, President Bush said this back in 2007. Our two nations hold fundamental values in common. We honor our traditions and our shared history. We recognize that the strongest societies respect the rights and dignity of the individual. And we understand and accept the burdens of global leadership. And we have built our special relationship on the surest foundations, our deep and abiding love of liberty. And I love that quote. Uh, and of, of course, President Bush would, would describe it as such. Uh, because he did have uh, such a good relationship, uh, working relationship with the, the British. And I think that just speaks to a long-term view of human dignity uh, that, that our two nations have held now for, for many years. Maybe not always perfectly, uh, but we certainly have tried to project that to the larger world. So there you go, Lindsay, the special relationship. The special relationship. All right, Lindsay, moving into our next story, um, I, I said at the outset that Prime Minister Johnson's resignation was the biggest story of this calendar week. Unfortunately, since we last recorded, another major story occurred, and sadly and tragically, it was another mass shooting, and this one took place on Independence Day. This comes to us from Axios. The latest mass shooting in the wealthy lakefront suburb of Highland Park, Illinois, came as Americans celebrated bonds still holding us together. A grocery store, a church, an elementary school, and now a parade have all become killing grounds in the past seven weeks. A gunman on a rooftop fired dozens of bullets on an annual Fourth Fest parade killing six, wounding 30, and sending hundreds of marchers, parents with strollers and kids on bikes fleeing in terror. We now know, uh, after this report was released, uh, there are now seven who have passed away from this uh, tragedy. Continuing with the story, it says, quote, the high school marching band's members sprinted for their lives, still carrying their flutes and saxophones, the Chicago Tribune reported. The wounded ranged in age from 8 to 85, including four or five children. At least 19 were treated and discharged. The gunman climbed to the roof of a business using a ladder in an alley. The suspected shooter was taken into custody about five miles away in Lake Forest after an eight-hour manhunt. The shooter opened fire partway through the parade at a point on the route where residents had staked out prime viewing spots, and he apparently used a high-powered rifle, the incident commander said. The rifle was recovered at the scene. We now know, since this was reported, that the shooter, 21-year-old by the name of Robert E. Cremo III, 
has since said that he intended to go to another uh, July 4th event and conduct uh, another mass shooting, uh, and he admitted to, to doing this one. He is facing charges that could lead to a mandatory life sentence right now, but more are expected to come, including charges such as attempted murder, aggravated discharge, and aggravated battery charges. And so we, we've talked about uh, these sorts of heinous incidents before, but I noticed in some commentary over the over the weekend and the following days, Lindsay, there are are more and more conservative voices that are taking a step back uh, from any one of these incidences and looking at the overall picture, and they're arriving at a conclusion that that I think is is pretty accurate. These sorts of mass shootings, A, by definition, they are terrorism. But then B, they seem to be terrorism aimed at our public square in general. They are occurring in places where, where we are gathering and, and where we just kind of do life together. Uh, whether it is a parade uh, whether it is a school, whether it is a grocery store, those are the places in this increasingly isolated world that we live in. Those are places where we still interact with our neighbors uh, in in physical form, uh, not just as avatars online. And these terrorist incidences are really straining those bonds. I had someone over the weekend, a, a family member, remark that honestly, she's like, I. I don't have much interest in going to these sorts of large gatherings anymore uh, just because of all of these scary incidences uh, that are taking place. And that's that's something that I think we need to sit back and reckon with uh, because these are spaces that we need to have uh, for a well-functioning society. Yeah, myself, thinking about it, you just um... – you know, when I was growing up, you didn't really think twice about hopping on a plane or going to a parade or going somewhere where there's a large group of people, going to a mall. And now it's it's always in the back of my head, going to a movie theater. Now it's kind of always in the back of my mind that, uh, you know, what would be my plan of action if I needed to protect myself and others around me? And it's a sad state of affairs. And as one... Uh, one article was saying, you know, we need to talk about policies, et cetera, but it's it's just not something that's going to be an easy fix. And it's not something that we're going to be able to answer definitively. Why do these things keep happening? We just see evil running rampant. And it is sad to think about this is the day and age that our children are growing up in. What's it going to look like for them? And I know every generation probably says that, but I bet statistics would show that mass shootings have increased, you know, so in our day and age. And so, uh, yeah, there's no easy answer. Just as believers, we need to be wise and need to pray for the Lord's mercy. It's just hard to know how to answer these things. I read in one account where there were children at the parade site that were actually leading their parents away using the skills that they've learned from active shooting drills in their schools. That's wild. That is that crazy is to me. I read one account where a little toddler was found roaming around by herself or himself. I can't remember. It's because both of his parents were shot and yeah. killed. I mean, it's just, and he's, the child is safely with grandparents, but it's just, it should not be that way. Lord have mercy. Yeah. Come Lord Jesus. Mm -hmm. No doubt about it. 
Our final story comes to us from our friends at Baptist Press, and it is about an interview that they had with new SBC President Bart Barber. And he talks about the very high priority he is placing on the criteria for new task force appointees. So from the story, it says that Southern Baptist Convention President Bart Barber has unveiled his desired skill set for appointees to an abuse reform implementation task force that was approved by messengers at the 2022 annual meeting. Quote, you need, above all, a sense of the rightness of this task and the importance of this task for everyone, Barber said during the July 5th episode of the SBC This Week podcast. Everyone on this implementation task force needs to be committed to the solution of this problem. He went on to say that abuse reform implementation task force members must understand trauma, sexual abuse, the needs and concerns of abuse survivors, pertinent legal requirements, and SBC polity and structure. The team must include good communicators, people who have had good relationships with SBC leaders, and people who have the diplomacy to provide proposals and receive feedback. Uh, Further in the story, it goes on to say this, the task force will study the feasibility of various sexual abuse prevention measures recommended by Guidepost Solutions and the Sexual Abuse Task Force following an independent investigation of the SBC Executive Committee's response to sexual abuse complaints spanning two decades. So this is the the latest, and the, the other kind of newsy item that comes out of this is uh, uh, Barber said that he is kind of pushing up his time frame to announce appointees to the new task force. Um, most folks had expected that those would come at the end of July. He's going to actually try and make those by the middle of the month. So... Uh, I'm I'm thankful for this. I'm thankful certainly that President Bart Barber has the heart uh, for this because that is certainly where our convention of churches uh, is right now, and they they want action on this and they want reforms to be implemented. And so this is the first in a series of steps uh, that will come about to combat sexual abuse. And uh, and I'm thankful that he is taking it so seriously and prayerfully. And we are thankful for Bart Barber and look forward to all that. God uses him to do within the Southern Baptist Convention over this next year. We had a great interview with him about religious liberty uh, last week, and I would encourage you to read it. He just is sharp, and I'm just thankful that he is the man for the moment in the SBC. All right, Lindsay, well, that's your look at This Week in Culture. Thanks for that, Brent. And now it's time for the lunchroom, where we tell you what we're talking about with each other. Brent, what have you been noodling on? This is the first time we've done the lunchroom in a bit, I feel like. It is. Well, I've been noodling on the thing that, you know, I've been noodling on for the past couple weeks, which is the Midsummer Classic, the All-Star Game, Lindsay, the Major League Baseball All-Star Game, which this year is taking place in Chavez Ravine, where the Los Angeles Dodgers play at Dodger Stadium. And I'm excited about it because, well, I always get excited about the All-Star Game. I'm a bit of a baseball nerd, if you will. And I'm also nerd. Yes. uh, And I'm also excited about it because the Atlanta Braves, uh, the official Major League Baseball club of the Southern Baptist Convention, will be well represented at this year's Midsummer Classic uh, with such leading names as Ronald Acuna, uh, Max Fried, Austin Riley, I think Dansby Swanson absolutely should be the starting shortstop uh, for for the National League. Uh, And so uh, I'm looking forward to it uh, because I'm going to watch it with my kids. 
And uh, this was something that I, I did each year annually. I'd, I'd go to uh, my mama and papa's house and uh, they, would, they would just lay down a whole bunch of blankets and quilts uh, in front of their TV and, and we would watch it together. And I'd usually fall asleep uh, by the time it got to the later innings. But that was, that's just such a sweet memory for me and, and I want to recreate it as much as I can for, for our kids. I know your kids will love that. I What you are saying sounds uh, like a different language to me. So those names, I don't know who those people are. Baseball is fine. I just didn't grow up on it. So for me, it would be more like football because I grew up on that. So it's nostalgic. Once again, I mentioned it before. I go to a baseball game, the very few that I've been to, for the snacks and the concession stand. So You are a bit of a foodie. I'm not a foodie. I just, I, I don't describe, I think foodies don't eat at concession stands. <laughs> so I just like the pretzels, but I am particular about those. Well, my lunchroom is just completely worthless, but entertaining nonetheless. With July 4th and fireworks, we, we set off a few fireworks, just small ones that my husband's friend likes to do. And Marion got to do sparklers for the first time. But then I came across this video of uh, fireworks gone bad, which you have every year. I don't think anyone got majorly hurt uh, from this one, but it was caught on a Simply Safe home camera outside, and it was a bunch of people sitting around in a yard. This guy put this, I mean, it looked like it was probably a foot-long firework right there, like right on the sidewalk by their yard. So I don't know why he did that in the first place. Then he lit it, and so then it just shot off fireworks uh, at the base of it in all directions. So then you see everyone jump up, grab the babies, grab the kids, scatter. Well, when it's shot off, there's a, right next to where everyone's gathered in the small yard, there's a van and something else, I can't tell, and people standing there. Well, then behind the van just starts popping off and smoke and explosions and everyone is scattering and there's smoke and fire filling the screen. So I don't know if they had to get a new car. I'm not sure. I'm not sure exactly what they had to do, but um, I have a feeling this fireworks uh, event was a lot more expensive than they anticipated. And it reminded me of the iconic video, back it up, Terry, put it in reverse, fireworks situation that happened. <laughs> yes, th- this this video uh, joins the uh, stellar pantheon of uh, fireworks videos out there. And so you remember that one. I also remember the one, I want to say it took place in San Diego, where uh, an individual, I guess a fireworks operator, inadvertently set all the fireworks off at the same time. No way. <laughs> it was just one giant explosion. And it was <sighs> it was cool. Now, that's probably, you know, everybody was kind of like, oh, that 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 really just started and ended very quickly, but it was a memorable fireworks show. Uh and so yeah, this this one is definitely gonna be up there uh with those. That's which, amazing. So long as nobody gets hurt, right? I am. I, I'm here. For I am. Those videos. I am thankful that somebody was wise enough to record these moments to share with the rest of us. Is, um, they are amazing and entertaining. I, like you said, as long as nobody is getting hurt. So, you know, I'm glad we're back to the lunchroom because it's just it's just not as fun if we're not sharing mostly meaningless pieces of information or videos or whatever it might be with one another at the end of this podcast. So I hope you as listeners enjoyed that too. And we are so thankful that you joined us on this episode of the ERLC podcast. 
Just a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your favorite podcast app and leaving us a rating and review. The ERLC podcast is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is hosted by Lindsay Nicolay and Brent Leatherwood. Technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. And in addition to listening to the ERLC podcast, be sure to check out our other ERLC podcasts. The Digital Public Square airs every Monday, and its host is Jason Thacker, who is one of the leading voices on technology and ethics. And if you like staying informed about important policy decisions that matter to Southern Baptists, Capital Conversations is our podcast directly from Capitol Hill, which is hosted by our colleague, Chelsea Sobolit. Search for The Digital Public Square and Capital Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week with more content. Mm-hmm.